Welcome to More to Come, PW Comic World's weekly podcast on comics and graphic novel publishing. Uh, I'm Calvin Reed, Senior News Editor of Publishers Weekly, co-editor of PW Comics World, and editor of the Fanatic PW's twice-a-month comics and pop culture newsletter. Check us out online at publishersweekly.com slash comics. All right, this week uh, I have the great pleasure once again to be talking with uh, Jeff Trexler. Uh, this time, however, he's in a whole new situation uh, really a very important situation. He is a new interim director of the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund. Fund. Jeff, uh, thank you so much for being on More to Come. Thank you for inviting, to be on, inviting me to be on the podcast. It's great to be here. Uh, and, you know, as I mentioned to you before, this is there a second time on the show. You were on before, actually, as part of a big panel that we did. I think it was about uh, the legal issues and ethics around crowdfunding. We did it in San Diego. Oh, San Diego, this the, the uh, at a convention seems like a million years <laughs> in ago. Person. I know, uh, with other nerds, um, but uh, you know, and hopefully in the future, sometime we, we will be able to to get back at these big events. Uh, for now, we're on uh, one one platform or another. Um, but look, obviously, uh, this is a really important issue. You're taking over uh, the CBLDF, the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund, really at, at a moment, uh, you know, a moment of crisis at, at a crossroads for the organization. Uh, the former executive director, Charles Brownstein, retired, I believe, after uh, – resigned, uh, I believe, after um, 18 years uh, or so running the organization uh, under terrible circumstances. Um uh, obviously, uh, most of it re- uh, really uh, related to charges of, of uh, sexual allegations uh, that mm-hmm. happened in 2006. And I'm going to refer our listeners to the Comics Journal, which has a very detailed account of everything that went on. Um, but he, uh, 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 Charles Brownstein, uh, who I knew for, I've known for many years. Uh, Charles wrote for me, uh, wow, in the early 2000s. Uh, uh, for publishing before he took over uh, at the CBLDF. Uh, um, but um, uh, uh, he resigned uh, after um, renewed focus on the earlier event and new allegations. So um, I, I really at this point, uh, and, I, and, it's, and once we get through this, I want to talk a little bit about your background. But can you recap for our listeners, uh, I mean, what the board knew about this and – uh, and just, you know, what they, what the, how they decided to, to, uh, to go forward, uh, after accepting, uh, uh, Charles's re- uh, resignation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a delicate situation. I think anytime this sort of thing happens with an organization, in part because for years there was a standard way of handling, um, any reports of harassment or, alleged sexual improprieties on the part of a staff member. My own background is I've worked in nonprofits and ethics since really this, the start of my career. It's why I went to law school. And I've been directly involved working in sexual harassment cases for almost 20 years, since 2001 when I started working with several victims of harassment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's been my focus up until working with the CBLDF. It's either been working directly with victims of harassment or serving as the victim's voice in advising uh, businesses and how they could reform their practices in order to deal with the situation more effectively and more ethically. So one of the reasons I have spent so much of my time on this area is that the standard way of approaching this, I very quickly discovered, was to view the person bringing the report as the problem. 
they were potentially going to cause liability for the organization. Um, they could hurt, hurt the organization by you know, damaging fundraising and, and reputation through the allegations made against uh, the, the person on staff. And so even if they found that there was harassment, the tendency tended to be uh, to, to have a twofold response. One, uh, discipline the staff member, discipline the executive uh, so that they could maybe they take it maybe they take a dock and pay maybe they take some sure. time off the phrase administrative leave is mm. used often mm. uh, and then they come back uh, and but then the person bringing the report leaves they get sometimes they get a cash settlement sometimes they don't mm-hmm. but typically that person is out of the organization i saw that i had that explained to me repeatedly over and over again on both sides of the table as i started in this area and it just struck me as the wrong thing to do hmm. so my own work has been involved i've been working with government officials mm-hmm. to reform this reform in new york which ended up influencing reform in california uh, oregon and other states uh, and i have worked with a number of organizations to change this and even help found nonprofit organizations that uh, work directly with victims and uh, work for reform throughout entire industries. The fashion industry, the, the most prominent in this. So when the CBLDF, when I heard about, about how the, the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund handled this, uh, sort of keeping the person in office, mm. uh, and then the person mm. stayed in office mm. after the... Because he was disciplined. Excuse me right. for interrupting. He was disciplined in 2006, uh, but he continued to run the organization. Right. Uh, I, I don't know all of the the, uh, the details uh, of the discipline, um, but uh, he, he he was there. And, and and then of course, what we were also curious about is, um, you know, was the board aware of new allegations that or in the interim period? I do know. I do know that, and this is. We're all finding this out together because, yeah. you know, because we're, we're I, I'm, I'm new to the organization. I wasn't mm-hmm. part of the CBLDF before this. Sure. Um, for, for various reasons. And some, some folks know more about that than others. Um, so with respect to this, I do know that the way the board handled it initially was very consistent with the way things have been handled, the way mm-hmm. things I think uh, these things should not be handled. I'm not excusing what was done because, frankly, I've worked my entire career to make sure that organizations never do that sort of thing again. Yeah. Uh, and I understand that there were board members uh, who were aware of what happened in, in 2010 uh, when there was another individual had some, or I think a couple individuals had some had some issues, and then those were resolved in a similar fashion. Uh, again, nine. 99 out of 100 organizations that were encountering these sort of situations would have handled them this particular way. A way I believe 100% is wrong and should never be done again. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure it never happens again with the CBLDF. And if there's any way we can provide a model for the rest of the comics industry, I'm going to do my best to do that. Um, but my understanding is these things are just processed. You, 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 you find somebody to investigate you discipline the person, the other people move forward. Um, I don't like that particular approach, but that's the approach that happened. Yeah. Um, uh, and, being, but, and once again about the board, uh, um, I mean, I guess I don't know quite know how to phrase the question. Uh, I mean, um, was the board aware of new allegations? Did they become aware at a, at a later date? Uh, at what point were they moved to accept uh, the resignation uh, of Charles. Mm-hmm. My understanding is that that happened, that things uh, came to the fore this summer. So I know that there was a resurgence of reports 
after the Me Too movement. Mm-hmm. I believe that you know, 2017, 2018, people called attention to it again, and for reasons I, I don't know because I wasn't there. Uh, that it didn't. He he didn't leave them. Yeah. Uh, but then uh, once again in 2020, this issue came to the top once again. It was hitting Twitter and and mass media, uh, TCJ, uh, and I think at that point it just. At that's that's the point he decided to move on. Yeah. Now again, if it, if it had been me, this we would have never reached this point because the moving on would have been done back in 2005. I believe it was like 2005 was when it first happened in 2006 and it became public. That's, yeah. that's my memory. I think that's right. Uh, but again, that's just this is just the arc. This is just the arc as I'm aware of it. It was when I saw it happening back in 20 back in 2017 and 2018. I was involved uh, very extensively in legal reform efforts that ended up uh, getting enacted here in New York, um, which was extending protections to independent contractors, to relieving the requirements of victims to adhere to NDAs. Uh, that was all reform I participated in, and I'm very proud of, proud of that. Um, and in fact, those of you who want to search online, you'll see my public written testimony and also my televised testimony on those issues. Um, but again, it's... I can't I can't say what was in the mind of board members, uh, but what I what I can say is that it does look like it was 2020 when all of this happened when it finally got to be it got to be public to such a degree that there, there seemed to be a sense that, that it was time for him to move on. Um, but again, mm-hmm. uh, personally, I think personally I think it should have been earlier. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, let's jump to now. Um, uh, how did you come to take the position? Um, mm-hmm. Maybe uh, you, you mentioned a little bit about your background, and I, I did want to ask. Um, I mean, uh, I I encountered you, um, you know, on that panel, and you were a great source of information, particularly uh, you know, with, uh, talking about crowdfunding in terms of um, indie artists, individual artists using using uh, crowdfunding and liability or other kind of issues that mm-hmm. they might. Be involved in, but I uh, looking at your background and you you work at the Fashion Law Institute and Caring Americas. Can you tell us anything about that and what oh, your yeah. what yeah. your jobs were there? I originally went to law school for to work with nonprofit organizations in Africa. That's what I did. I, it was connected to my dissertation. I got fascinated by the way organizations adapt to change and changing values among constituents and societies in which they work. I happen to meet a professor at Yale Law School as the founder of nonprofits as an academic field, and I've been working in that area ever since. I had been a chaired professor at uh, Pace University, focusing on social entrepreneurship, and I was also executive director of their Center for Social Entrepreneurship for uh, a period of time, uh, during which time the Fashion Institute was founded, and it was a tremendous, tremendous opportunity to help build a movement from the ground up, just as I'd seen happen with nonprofit organizations law. Here we had a nonprofit organization that was creating an academic field of law, which had never been recognized as such before. Uh, and it was it was, a, it was a tremendous opportunity to build an academic field and also to influence industry. So one of the first things we did at the Fashion Law Institute was uh, help found an organization called the Model Alliance, which um, issued a clarion call to the modeling industry, to the fashion industry as a whole, uh, about the way that models are being treated, uh, particularly mm-hmm the particular issues of sexual harassment in the industry and the way they were sort of falling through a loophole in the law and that independent contractors were traditionally not protected 
by federal civil rights law and even most state and local civil rights laws. So we started working even then to reform that situation to provide informal means of reporting and getting harassers out of the industry, uh, and then also reforming the law itself. First, mm-hmm. through, it was model-specific reforms, but then and industry-wide reforms, and then through protecting all independent contractors. And frankly, my experience with the comics industry and cosplayers and freelancers in comics was foremost on my mind when I was advocating to New York that we extend legal protection to all independent contractors. Mm-hmm. So when I saw that you know, I've been watching CBLDF from afar for a long time, and my impression was that it wasn't that there wasn't kind of an openness to the sort of thing that I was advocating. I mean, I saw, I saw, you know, they, you saw some of the problems from afar. Yeah, I saw some of the problems from afar. Let's leave it at that. Okay. And and I saw that there was certain there was a certain continuity, shall we say, and and it just didn't seem like there was really going to be an opportunity for me to have much of a positive influence. Um, Mm -hmm. But when I saw the story kick up again in 2020, it seemed to me that it reached a point of no return, that there was really no way that the organization could survive if it continued to hold to the practices that it had in the past with respect to basically, let's keep this person on board because this person's too important uh, and and let's push this all away. Mm -hmm. Um, that, That had to stop. That had to stop right away. So I reached out to the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund and said, look, here's here's who I am. This is what I do. This is the success that we've had in the fashion industry dealing with a similar problem, getting a lot of the getting getting people out who were particularly sort of focal points for for harassment and other other issues in the industry uh, and protecting people uh, throughout the industry. Here's what I've done in fashion. Here's what we've done through the Fashion Law Institute. Uh, I can help you. In, in comics, if you let me. For sure. Uh, now, you reached out to the board. Uh, yes. Because, uh, yes. I mean, obviously, uh, your background seems ideal to deal with the issues that are, uh, you know, around this. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and you, mentioned, you mentioned Caring. Caring is the parent company of Gucci, Balenciaga, a number of other brands. Mm-hmm. And Caring has been a model to me of how a company can respond in an ethical way and in a proactive way to these types of concerns. Because one of the things that they did was set up uh, means within the company to have outside eyes look at their harassment issues, outside eyes look at their ethics policies. I was specifically brought on to be an outside voice. Mm -hmm. So the more blunt and honest I am, the happier they are. That's what they want. Uh, in terms of somebody representing the victim's point of view, uh, and and so I've been I've conducted training for them. Uh, I have I, I, it's been it's been a wonderful wonderful opportunity to see what can happen when you have progressive individuals and in leadership who are open to ethics reform, uh, what far-reaching ethics reform entire, throughout an entire industry. And you've seen them issue new standards for the treatment of models, new statements for the trans. Yes, treatment absolutely. It's been it's been, a, it's been a tremendous success. Mm-hmm. So uh, again. When I saw it, it's, I've been watching what's been happening in comics, not just at the CBLDF, but more generally for yeah. a number of years. Occasionally, I've written about it. For there's some articles I did for TCJ on, on even the CBLDF years ago, and how I thought they needed to change, uh, and also for Heidi and, and the Beat. Sure. Mm-hmm. So where I've written about harassment and cosplay and those sort of issues. Yeah. So it just seemed. Yeah. T- and like it, if, if I might just jump in, because I want to make like, our listeners to know that you are indeed a member of this community as well. You are a comics fan. 
Um, I mean, you, you know the issues. Um, so, yeah, I just wanted to, to make sure our listeners uh, are aware that you're embedded in this community. I still have, I still, have, you know, I was looking the other day. I still have my copy of All in Color of a Dime that I had when I was a little kid, and, which I read so many times it split in half. It is literally in go. two in two pieces. <laughs> okay, <laughs> it's imprinted on my mind. So the comics community means a lot to me. It has shaped so much of what I do. My approach to law, my approach to ethics, um, even even sort of my understanding of the way the relationship between an industry and the community itself. Uh, it's it's something that means that means a lot to me, and in part, yeah, I know I didn't. There are some people who know that I that I lurked in the internet back in the '80s, back when there was a thing called Usenet. Kids, <laughs> tell me about it. Tell me about it. I was on a panel once, and I mentioned to someone that I was on um, Usenet, and everybody went, "Whoa, old G." Yeah. So yes, so it's it's been of interest. It's been it's been a, a, of interest to me for a long time, and the opportunity to do even the smallest thing in terms of uh, in terms of helping that community it, it, it means a lot to me. So uh, you 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 uh, have been named interim director. Your your credentials seem so perfect <laughs> to be the director. Uh, uh, what what is the what is the what is your your ultimate status? And maybe can you tell us a little bit uh, then about. Uh, uh, the search for mm-hmm. a permanent executive director. Yeah, from the from the very first call that I made to the organization, I said that, that I said that if I'm going to do this, it needs to be interim. It can only be short term because there needs to be. I think in order to cultivate, there's several reasons for this. One of which is in order to cultivate trust, I think there needs to be a sense that I'm an independent voice. That I'm coming in, I'm going to be transparent. I don't really have a stake in any long-term connection to the organization. So if there's really no concern, at least in my own mind, and I hope people who are listening to this, that I'm trying to cut corners here and compromise here in order to sort of lobby so that I can be in there for the long-term job and curry favor here, because frankly, um, there's no long-term job for me. I'm not going to apply for it. In fact, one of the things that I've been working on is the job description for the new executive director position. Uh, so this is, it's, it's simply not an interest to me. I don't think it's in keeping with the, the best interest of the organization to have me pursue that. I really am occupying a transitional role that I've designed top to bottom for that purpose. Um, another reason is, frankly, diversification. Uh, I think that's the CBLDF needs to represent the community that it represents. Mm-hmm. And it didn't seem consistent for me to come in and say, hey, I really think you need to diversify. And the first thing you need to do is hire me for permanent executive director. <laughs> I, I, I could see where that might undercut your position a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so so it just it didn't mm-hmm. for me. Ethics is a lot of is it a, is about an alignment of words and actions that what you do is consistent with what you say. And I just couldn't be consistent with what I was telling the organization to do on multiple levels uh, if it looked like it was all about me doing whatever I could to have a, have a permanent base. So what can you tell us about the uh, the search for a new um, executive mm-hmm. director? Has it um, started? Are, are there candidates being interviewed? Or are we still too early for that? 
My, I know that we've already started talking about it with the board, so mm-hmm. that is something that I know that the board, and I know that Christina, the the president, has been talking about since even before I went on board that they were thinking about this and and coming up with the best practices in order to move forward with the executive director search. My own position, and I and I want to underscore here that everything I say here is me. You know, this yeah. is this mm-hmm. is I haven't cleared this conversation with the board. This isn't you know this is this is me just talking to you and talking to the community. Uh, my own approach to this focuses on institution building. Mm-hmm. That is to say, you don't want a situation where you have in, in a nonprofit organization where you have an institutional vacuum and a strong leader at the center who controls everything, controls the mission, controls what you do, controls the individuals. I don't think that that's healthy for a nonprofit organization, particularly once you get beyond the founder phase. I'm a little more forgiving when you have you know, one charismatic individual creating the organization who's trying to represent the vision. There's a little bit more give there compared to when you have an organization that is established as the CBLDF was. Uh, so... When I look at the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund now, I see that it is when it when it when I arrived here, it seemed to be operating at something of an institutional deficit. So I've been working on developing a new distributed workflow, um, strengthening connections with the community, strengthening our staff, uh, distributing responsibility to various people who are working with the organizations, whether staff or volunteers. Um, and from my perspective. The executive director search will be the most successful when the organization is coming to it from a position of institutional strength. So that's something that you can't simply turn on the lights. You know, my mm-hmm. now it's not going to take as long as one would think. It's not going to be a long term mm-hmm. position. Um, so we're talking months, not years. Uh, but I, I think that just simply, you know, sort of having me here for a matter of days and then coming to a new executive director would set the organization up for the sort of perhaps even worse problems than it had before, mm-hmm. simply because there wouldn't be connections with the community and there wouldn't be a strong institutional core. My model for this, the first major project that I worked on after my dissertation and, and, and in law school had to do with Russian nonprofit legal reform, where I worked with a Russian organization in what was at the time a minority position in Russia, which was we took the position of working uh, sort of ground up institutionally in terms of building nonprofits, building social capital, whereas this typical American approach was that this is a blank slate and we can just get certain leaders and have massive reforms right away, uh, and then um, the org- Russia will be a democratic paradise forever. And what, of course, what, you, what we got out of that was Vladimir Putin. Yeah. So having been on the what I believe was the right side of history but the wrong side of the battle, um, okay. It, it reinforced my belief in the importance of, of its strong institutional growth as priority. Uh, well, part of that is, is the, I guess, are the boards as well. Now, a number of board members left uh, mm-hmm. right after um, uh, Charles's resignation. Uh, are we? Are you going? Are they going to be replaced? Um, uh, what, what can you tell us about the, the nature of the board? It's the same. The board right now is is working from a relatively it's a relatively small board compared to what it had been before, and so one of the things I'm talking about with them, and they've been ta- they've been great talking amongst themselves, is what we can do to rebuild the governance structure responsibly. So that involves thinking about what's the future organization, what's our mission, uh, what's the connection between the metaphor I've been using a lot is rebooting it. It's not that we're trying to expand the mission or 
or create a new mission. It's going back to our roots, going back to our institutional DNA and expressing that to the fullest. Uh, those of you who, who read my the announcement know that I am a huge Grant Morrison fan. And uh, so the way that the way that he has been able to take characters, strip them back to back to their core, what they were originally created to be, and all of the, the dynamism, all the possibility there that have been untapped. Um, and frankly, all the interesting ways that continuity can be explored, uh, it, it has been an influence on me. So what I want to do is maintain our first, our, our commitment to free speech and free expression, but also serve the community in ways connected to that, that perhaps the CBLDF in the past hadn't fully explored or realized that it could do. Okay. Well, but for, for, for our listeners who may not understand it, um, know the history of C, the CBLDF. I mean, it was started in the mid 1980s. Um, uh, it was, uh, it coalesced around, um, you know, a, a, uh, basically, uh, a comics retailer, Friendly Franks. Uh, as a side note, one of the first stories I ever wrote at Publishers Weekly when I was hired, uh, was about Friendly Franks. Uh, that's wow. how I met and first came into contact with Dennis Kitchen, uh, who I guess is pretty much considered, I guess, the founder of the CBLDF. Is that the founder? The founder, Guiding Light, has yeah. been a tremendous inspiration. I've gone back and actually listened to, you know, podcasts that he's done and read through the history because I had a tremendous vision for the organization. The one time I did have interaction with the organization. One of the few times I had interaction with the organization in a substantive way was back in 1996 in Ventura, California, when they did a, a talk, uh, an information session on the Paul Mavridis case, where uh, it involved sales tax of original work by artists. So that that has been something that I've mentioned repeatedly as, as capturing an aspect of the organization that we've lost, which is that they did more than work on obscenity cases when they started. They had a much broader conception of their mission. Uh, and that's just something we've lost over the past decade or so. Um, well, tell us the, midju- the mission. And, um, um, uh, you know, and I, I should say that, you know, uh, I mean, certainly early on in CBL's, uh, CBLDF's um, history, I mean, protecting retailers uh, from overzealous uh, cops and DAs and um, uh, basically arresting retailers for, sell- for selling First Amendment protected material. I mean, that seemed to be a big part of what C- the CBLDF did. Um, it seems today, though, actually, they do do much more. I mean, um, but we'll, we'll talk about that uh, uh, in a second, too. But maybe what you could do for our listeners is what is C- the CBLDF mission, and should that mission be changed? Um, uh, I'll leave that. I'll leave the question at that. Or can it be changed? I suppose I should say also. Yeah, and we're going to get into, and I'm going to be writing a bit more about this as we we enact reforms connected to the mission. I wrote a little bit about it in an article called "Mission: What's Possible" on the CBLDF website uh, because I've, it's been an interesting question for me. I had heard that there was a statement made several years ago, or a couple of years ago, a couple of years ago, I don't remember when, that. The comic book legal defense fund can only work on First Amendment cases, which seemed a little bit unusual to me, particularly because in context there was a particular kind of First Amendment case they were refusing to pick up. So I thought, well, gosh, who? who that was my worried? understanding too. Yeah. That, the, that it was chartered to, to deal with the, the protecting First Amendment and reading rights. Yes. Mm-hmm. 
So I thought, well, who who was the lawyer who wrote that? Because I'm a lawyer, you know, Yale Law School trained. I've been working mm-hmm. in this area for a while. I've written on obscenity stuff. And I thought, you know, there was a way that they, those, that they could have done more, even working within the First Amendment. So I started doing some looking, and I realized that there was no legal opinion ever formally issued on that. That, mm-hmm. that had been something that people had been talking about, but it actually, I had never found a legal statement by a lawyer where you have well, there they seem called opinion letters in law, where lawyers say this is what you can do, this is what you can't do, and there was never any such thing in the CBL of history that I've been able to locate. So I started digging into it myself, and I realized that there was a bit of an urban myth with respect to what the legal defense fund can and can't do. Now I come at this from the perspective of a nonprofit organization lawyer working with purpose clauses mm-hmm. is something I've done now for, God, I hate to say it, almost thirty years. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, I know. Uh, you can edit that out, please. That's, that's, two years, three years. Too late. <laughs> <laughs> I've no, been to PW always, for thirty years too, so yeah. we, we both have a burden to bear. But so go on. <laughs> so about thirty years, and I looked at their bylaws, and what interested me was it didn't say that their work was limited to the First Amendment. That's interesting it, because that's yeah, been it didn't say. That and at I all. also it, thought that this was maybe something that was um, uh, a requirement for nonprofits. No. No, uh-huh. um, nonprofits, where the way that nonprofit law is structured, particularly at the federal level, sort of nonprofit is a, is a state law category and tax exemption under 501c3 in particular you're most familiar with, mm-hmm. uh, c3 for charities, c6 for trade associations, that's at the federal level. And so what the organization looks to is how you're organized and operated. Organized refers to the articles, the, the language in your articles and bylaws. Operated refers to what you actually do. So I looked at the language in their articles and bylaws, which is the same, and it referred to uh, constitutional rights pertaining to uh, free speech, freedom of uh, the press, and this sort of stuff. And I'm going, wow. If you actually look at the Constitution, the constitutional rights associated with those rights are quite broad. They go well beyond the First Amendment to cover such things as contract rights, intellectual property rights. Uh, there's even a connection there to the way Congress has the authority to regulate, uh, to regulate trade. So I realized that if you go through the literal purpose, there's a lot that the organization could do that it simply hasn't been doing. Technically, you don't need to amend the bylaws in order to do the, have the expansive approach to the CBLDF mission that I think would be representative of not just the founding of the mission, but also the founding of the organization, but the comics community as a whole and its long history of litigation. So I'll get back to 501c3 in a second, but to, to focus on comics for a minute, when you look at comics history, there, there are two ways you can look at the lawsuits. One is through the technicalities of copyright law and the technicalities of contracts. The other way is you can look at it and you realize it's all about access and agency. Mm-hmm. It's about making sure that everybody has access to the, having their work sold and getting the fruits of that work in terms of the finances and credit um, and also agency. They want to make sure that they're, you know, much like with great power, there's great responsibility that people who have all the power in terms of publishing or media uh, don't keep those who create the comics from being able to have some sort of participation in their work. So access and agency are these these two key concepts in comics litigation that go throughout obscenity litigation and censorship, to intellectual property, contract disputes, tariffs. It keeps coming back again and again and again and again. And I think that's at the heart of what the CBLDF is here to protect. Mm-hmm. So 
when it comes to reforming the mission, I look at it from two different perspectives that I think I found a way to work out in the articles and bylaws that's consistent with everything that's come before, all the continuities retained, mm-hmm. uh, but while also expressing even more fully the way we were there before. And it's this. From the IRS perspective, all you need in your chartered purposes in terms of the organized part is for it to fall within the zone of what qualifies for tax exemption under the section of the code for which you're seeking exemption. So charities are under 501c3, charities and educational organizations, literary organizations. So all literally all we would need to do from the IRS perspective is say that we are organized for um, educational, literary, uh, charitable purposes pertaining to the comic arts. I mean, that's it. That's all we mm-hmm. would have to do in order for the IRS to be happy. In fact, we could just simply organize, just repeat the language of 501c3 mm-hmm. and the IRS would be happy as long as we have other material indicating what it is specifically that we're going to do. What people commonly think of as a mission statement is more public-facing in terms of defining mm-hmm. the organization public, not defining the organization legally. Yeah, and I interesting. have developed specific language for that that we're now running, we're going to be running through additional counsel as well as the board. And once that's finalized, I'll make it public and then we can all discuss it together. Yeah. That's one thing in terms of the workflow I want to emphasize. Mm-hmm. I'm not doing anything by myself. Mm-hmm. Everything that I have in terms of an idea, in terms of where I think things should go, a recommendation, I run it through our staff. I run it through additional counsel because even though I'm a lawyer, you can always benefit from collaboration. Sure. And I run it through the this is this is all about everything being distributed and not having power concentrated in one person, especially me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, then that's a very good point. So um, I, I'm going to jump to a legal issue that I, I think you, you you know about, and that was the defamation lawsuit um, that was filed against 11 indie cartoonists in 2018. Uh, it brought the CBLDF and the Small Press Expo together uh, to try to support them. Uh, is this then something that um, I mean? Could should CBLDF involve itself in civil suits? Uh, what other kinds of things then would be appropriate? Uh, you know, some sort of individual support to artists, or um, yeah, I don't know. It, 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 this could CBLDF be a completely different kind. You seem to be saying could be a in addition to the leak the legal services that it has provided in protecting. Librarians, uh, retailers, individual artists, could it also be, uh, get involved itself in, say, civil suits, uh, and other kinds of issues? There is, with respect to civil suits, this is, this is actually something I've been thinking about a lot, and particularly this instance a couple of years ago. And, I, and if I get the timeline slightly wrong, I do apologize, but it's just in my head as a couple of years ago. Uh, that's one of the situations that baffled me from a legal perspective because defamation lawsuits are concerned with the First Amendment, right? Mm-hmm. It's about free speech because mm-hmm. what part of the reason we have certain zones that are protected from liability in a defamation lawsuit, it's to preserve free speech. In fact, it makes us different from some other countries where the free speech protections in defamation are not as strong. So the First Amendment has a powerful, powerful role there to play. Uh, so it just sort of baffled me that a lawyer would say that defamation has nothing to do with free speech because that just goes against everything that has ever been written about defamation lawsuits going back hundreds of years in American jurisprudence. Uh, so happily, nobody ever said that. And I get a prudential concern, which we call in law, sort of a practical concern 
for not getting involved in in defamation suits. However, there is a role that I believe we could have played in that lawsuit in terms of helping people who were trying to deal with being sued in this situation mm -hmm. um, have a better assessment of what they can and perhaps should do when faced with being at this end of, of a definition sure. lawsuit. Now, to give some, to, to step back a bit, uh, I have, um, to, to step back a little bit, I've been, I, I mentioned my work with the Fashion Law Institute. One of the things that we did there very early on was set up a clinic. And this clinic, uh, it's called the Fashion Law uh, Pop-Up Clinic, based on the whole pop-up retail and fashion industry, mm -hmm. is we connect individuals in the fashion community, individuals in need, whether they're models or designers or you know any number of people, with attorneys with a particular area of expertise to help them learn about what their rights are, what opportunities are, to help them um, uh, to, to help them. Uh, figure out how to deal with difficult li situations from litigation to rights enforcement, you know, whether they're filing trademarks, patents. Um, really, there isn't a legal issue in fashion that we haven't helped people with. And what's been great about it is that we've been able to work with people on all sides of the industry. It's not seen as an oppositional relationship. It's that people understand that we're there to, we were there when I was with the Institute, that uh, we were there to help educate people on, give people the tools to deal with legal issues in their businesses. Uh, and then we were also connecting with people who needed free legal help uh, so that they wouldn't be hurt by the fact that they didn't have the resources to get the legal help that they need. So it was, it's been tremendously successful. We helped hundreds of people over the decade, uh, over the past decade. And I know that we're going to be helping, the Institute's going to be helping hundreds more. So that was a real inspiration to me as to what's possible to do, what has yet to have been done in the comics industry, we should be able to be, serve as a resource to people, uh, helping them mm -hmm. get the tools they need, whether they're registering their copyrights, registering their trademarks. Some people in, in comics need to be registering patents, whether design patent or mm -hmm. utility patents, uh, reviewing their contracts, uh, dealing with tariffs, dealing with taxes. Mm -hmm. There's a role we can play matching the tremendous amount of legal expertise that's out there in comics with the needs in the comics industry, which has traditionally mm -hmm. been an, an industry that's appealed to people who are at the margins of society and communities of need, marginalized communities and communities of needs, because it's a, it's, it's a, there's right now extremely low barriers to access, uh, mm -hmm. it's relatively inexpensive to get into the industry. Uh, nobody should have to be in a situation where they can't afford to get the legal help they need. Mm -hmm. And just as in fashion, we saw that the industry realized that, that educated designers and educated consumers, educated models help the industry as a whole. I think the whole comics industry will understand that the more educated in the industry everybody in the industry is, the better everyone in the industry will be. So I, I think there's a lot we can do that we haven't done, and I've already started work on building that. So hopefully you'll hear an announcement in the next couple months. Okay. Now, I know we're running short on time here, and I'm sort of uh, begging you to give me just a little more oh, time. Um, I, I, I won't. Take take your time. I'm, I'm here. I'm happy to chat. Uh, okay. Um, uh, so uh, so this is very interesting. So you really are are sort of outlining a whole range of new services um, that it seems to me will require a different kind of membership outreach. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I I don't think uh, the community. I I think 
to, to go back to that defamation suit, I think that sort of focused the issues around which the indie, uh, the, the comics community, uh, uh, found the CBLDF wanting. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I'm, I think also we live in a time, and I'm curious to your thoughts on this, where censorship and the issues that the CBLDF, I think, used to approach in a very clear cut way, uh, have become fractious and a yep. little more diffuse. Uh, I think where we see that there are certain parts on the political spectrum that have co-opted um, censorship uh, as a cover for attacking uh, uh, um, uh, marginalized groups, mm-hmm. uh, long uh, exploited or, or sneered at groups, and have suddenly decided to cover themselves by saying that they're being censored. And I think it's made uh, – um, a younger generation dubious of giant institute anti-censorship institutions. Yep. Um, uh, so I, I, I'm curious of your thoughts on this and that we need to come up with a different way to define not only what the CBLDF does, but to explain um, anti-censorship or freedom of expression to a new generation that may not understand uh, how the, op- the organization uh, worked on this front in the past. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. And that's part of, in thinking it through and thinking about how what was really at stake in anti-censorship efforts decades ago, just in terms of, in, in terms of agency and access. It's funny, I was, I was looking through my writing on the CBLDF the other day and I noticed that this issue, this very issue that you're talking about now was what I built to in my first series with the comics journal. I think it was, I don't remember if it was 2011 or 2013, but it was a while ago. Uh, uh, where I was talking about the comics code and how the notion of sort of the, the hero versus villain, the Wortham versus the, you know, the, the, the noble sure. comics community model sure. that had been prevailing in comics for decades, I, that well, what I built to was that that was obsolete. Mm-hmm. That, that we, that the, the, the culture was changing. I already saw this a decade ago and that the comics legal, legal, comic book legal defense fund was going to have to adapt if it didn't want to be left behind. And it didn't adapt, frankly. And, yeah. uh, and I think part of what I want to try to do is help it adapt for the future. And this is where, you know, you know, and I, and it, this is, I never believed I would, I never believed that I would say this at some point, but this is where my religion, religious history PhD is a credibly practical help because <laughs> one of the things, <laughs> um, uh, people gave me money to do it, so I did it. And I thought, well, why did I do that? That was a mistake. But it turned out to be very, very helpful because one of the things we studied were these ethical waves. Whenever you have new media, there are these ethical waves that result. It's gone back hundreds of years in American history. And what we're seeing now with uh, Me Too and what's commonly called the woke movement is sort of in keeping with these periodic ethics. They, they used to be religious in times past, but they don't have to be religious. These ethics waves that come in. And one of the, one of the common features in ethics waves is that the communities that you set out to protect can often inadvertently end up being the ones being hurt. Now, in the 1950s, which was part of a similar wave, you know, Billy Graham and the moral reform in the 1950s, um, we saw, for example, there's this wonderful new book about, about race and the, uh, and EC Comics. And you saw how EC Comics, I used to love the, mm-hmm. I guess there's sometimes called the preachies and shock suspense stories. We were talking about all the ethical problems that people had, mm-hmm. uh, in, in America and, 
um, and Judgment Day, the classic the, the classic science fiction story. And then Wortham ends up calling these stories out and getting um, EC Comics shut down. Yeah. Uh, when they were the ones who were espousing the same progressive values that he was fighting for, Brown against Ward, <laughs> Brown against Board of Education. Yeah. You know, it's it's he ended up working against the very community he was trying to protect. So uh, what we've been trying to do, and we've also we've already started working on this, is look for ways that we can keep this, you know, counterproductive boomerang effect from happening now. Because we're all, as you as you just said, we're already seeing a situation. Where where these values are being turned against the very people who should be protected in this movement, who should be advanced in this mm-hmm. movement, and we don't want to see that happen again. Um, very quickly, uh, the organization has, uh, um, I mean, over the over the last twenty years or so, really come up with a really broad uh, publication uh, mm-hmm. um, uh, program, uh, fundraising uh, that brings in some of the biggest names in the business, uh, many of whom were troubled uh, and, and have declined. Where where do you stand on that? Where Where is the fundraising? And are these, obviously, these very, uh, you know, uh, people, names like Frank Miller and Neil Gaiman, of course, who have long been associated with it, where, where is the organization on that? Uh, uh, and... Um, uh, obviously, because the community is curious about the finances, how they're being used, uh, and you're outlining a whole other range of services uh, mm-hmm. that I don't, we haven't seen in the past that I would assume would have to need, will need funding as yeah. well. Mm-hmm. For the short term, one of the first things I did when I arrived was say we're going to, except for material that we already had that was donated, that's being sold on the website. Uh, we we immediately issued a moratorium on direct outreach or fundraising, um, unless something went out that I wasn't aware of. There've been no mm-hmm. emails saying you know send us money or anything like that, because I believe that our priority for the short term should be to rebuild trust, to reestablish mm-hmm. our connection with the community, and show that we have things that we still have value for the comics community, um, and and. From my perspective, asking for money is is not the right thing to do right now. Mm-hmm. So what I want to focus on is using the resources we have in order to provide more services to the community so they see that we're, we're actually providing something. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, over time, uh, there will be a renewal of fundraising appeals, but that's in the future. That isn't now. I don't personally, I don't see that happening until sometime in 2021. Mm-hmm. Um, but we'll do the best with the resources we have going forward. Now, of course, if anybody wants to contribute, they're more than welcome, mm-hmm. but I will not be asking for money mm-hmm. and I've told the staff not to do that either. Uh, we really want to focus on programs mm-hmm. for the yeah. near future. Uh, is this going to affect your your publishing programs? Uh, there's what the CBLDF Defender. I mean, you, there's a variety of stuff that mm-hmm. have been done on the educational front. Um, publications. Uh, I, I don't know how ongoing the uh, the program is. Is everything sort of on hold now, or what? No, our education team has been amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been I've been working with them. In fact, we just had a call today. Uh, I've been working with them, and we've been doing a, a lot. They've, they're committed to continuing to do what they've been doing. Uh, so we see, you know, in terms of in terms of protecting comics and their place in our educational system, you know, people need to understand graphic novels. They need to understand 
um, why they matter. They need to understand why certain elements of graphic novels that people have found objectionable deserve to be taught. Uh, and if anything, we want to expand that work over the near and long term. And that's what we're working on as a team. Mm-hmm. So that that has not gone away. We have already done some things very quietly. Um, one another thing, and again, this is this is my work as a, as an attorney. I've done a lot through collaboration and negotiation that many people don't know about. Uh, that's just mm-hmm. the way a lot of things are done in business, where mm-hmm. an issue comes up, you reach out, you get it done, and it quietly goes away, or it publicly happens, but you don't know how it happened. Uh, and there have been things that we've been working on at the CBLDF where we have had an impact. It's just that I've been very deliberate in saying to people, let's not publicize this. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there are people who are still reaching out to us for help, and we're still providing that help. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just that particularly for now, I think the quiet approach is going to be more effective. In certain instances, it's definitely what produces the results. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's just my preferred way of doing things right now. So if you're not seeing as many emails from the CBLDF saying, we sent this letter, we did this thing, that doesn't mean we're not doing them. It just means that we're actually getting a bunch of things done and not tooting the horn about it. Uh, it's just been a very deliberate move on my part. So okay. um, over time, you'll you'll find out more about some of that work, but a lot of it at this point is still under lawyer-client confidentiality or just sort of confidentiality uh, in general uh, because the parties involved want it to be that way. And I, I hope you understand that in the legal world, we're not talking about covering up harassment. We're talking about where people get involved in a dispute, sometimes the best way to handle it is just in a collaborative yeah. way. But we are working and we are doing good work. And if anybody has any questions about legal issues in comics or you've run into a situation where you're censored or you've run into a situation where your book isn't being sold, reach out to us because there's a good chance that we'll be able to either help you directly or connect you with an attorney who can uh, or uh, that I might be able to write about it because it's an issue that's mm-hmm. a lot of people and we may be able to help other people who have the same problem. Mm-hmm. So the CBLDF is in transition, but it is open for business. Mm-hmm. It is definitely open for business. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've, um, had, we've had a number of good things happen since I've come on board, uh, and we're looking forward to more in the future. Mm-hmm. Well, Jeff, look, I'm gonna I'm gonna wind this down here. I really appreciate you uh, uh, giving us time uh, and being open uh, and a good sport. <laughs> and uh, look, it's great to talk to you. Uh, you know, I'd love to talk to you again when this pr- whole project of you know rethinking the CBLDF is a little bit further along. Obviously, maybe uh, as we get closer to you know uh, a new uh, executive director. But look, thank you so much uh, for being on More to Come and talking about uh, a really, you know, this organization is really important, I think, to the comics community. It has been, uh, and uh, we want it to continue to be so. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anytime, I'm, I'm glad to do this. And, and maybe even sometime we can return to uh, Kickstarters, because I understand that the most important thing for everybody to do now is get Keanu Reeves on their Kickstarter. Uh, yes, apparently uh, so. <laughs> <laughs> so absolutely. So, so that sounds like a, 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 a podcast for another time. Look, terrific. Jeff, uh, thank you. Thanks once again for being on More to Come. All right. Thank you so much. Talk to you later. You bet.